really good to be with you guys. I think this is my third, maybe fourth. Switch mics. Check, check. All right, I think this is my third. Check, check. Good. Okay. I'm just going to let this hang here. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think it's my third, maybe fourth time here at the exchange. Uh, it's really good to be back with you all. Uh, the fact that I'm back here uh, a few times means that I haven't uh, bombed terribly. So, Josiah, thank you for inviting me back. I also uh, somehow have this uh, unfortunate luck of being a guest speaker in the most tumultuous times of American life. Uh, the last time I preached, I forgot what it was exactly, but Josiah and I had a very similar conversation where I reached out to him desperately like 48 hours before I was set to preach, like, uh, are you going to address this or do I have to with a bunch of strangers? Um, so thank you. Yeah, what he's not telling you is that I desperately asked him to show up so he would do that wonderful and incredible job uh, presenting on that issue. Um, like Josiah said, we're going to be in Mark 11. He has graciously allowed me to deviate for one week from your Prophets and Kings uh, series, but we still are talking about Prophets and Kings, just uh, the prophet and the king. So let me read our text. Uh, it is a, a chunk of text, so hang with me here as I work through it. Uh, we'll pray, and then we will get going. Starting uh, Mark 11 in verse 1 to 19. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are, you, uh, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks out on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out back to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, so the second time now, coming back to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. 
Lord, uh, a lot of weighty things on our minds and on our hearts, uh, some personal, some broader, some national. Um, and so, God, there's no better place for us to be than your word, um, grounding the swell of emotions that rises and falls in our hearts in something foundational and something stable uh, in something everlasting and something unchanging. And so, God, as uh, we unpack this truth, these truths together, just pray that you'd be with us and that you would speak through this sinner to these sinners, um, that your son may be lifted up and exalted in our hearts and more broadly in our world. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to rewind to 2001. I'm in fourth grade and I'm begging my mom to stay up later. Why? Was it to watch uh, Boy Meets World or potentially even Stevens? Millennials, you're with me. Gen Z, you're making fun of me. Boomers, these are probably the things that you allowed your children to watch. Um, no, it was not any of those Disney, cla uh, Disney classics, nor was it that godforsaken show The Simpsons. Uh, in fact, I was begging my mom to stay up later so I could read Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets. Now, I didn't know it then, but there was something that fascinated me about the narrative structure of Harry Potter and how J.K. Rowling crafted that tale. What's interesting about that book is she puts order and chaos side by side. So you have normal world, and then separated by walls and a thin layer is chaos. So you have Hogwarts, which is school, it's happening as normal, and then through the walls and under the ground is the Chamber of Secrets and that sinister snake that seeks to destroy and kill. That fascinated me, that's why I wanted to stay up. Fast forward to 2022, I'm 31 and I'm begging my wife to stay up later. Why? To watch The Office, usually, but not this time. It's to watch Stranger Things. Now, why Stranger Things? Because like Harry Potter, they employ this same motif, this same narrative device that has captivated audiences for quite some time. Like Harry Potter, there's these two coexisting yet opposite realities separated by a thin permeable layer. They're overlapping. You have what should be normal life in Hawkins, Indiana, and yet the upside down exists parallel to it, separated by various portals. Now, I know maybe some of those shows and books may be controversial for some of you, but the reality is those are successful in ways that are obvious because of these narrative structures. They've captivated the mind of America for sure. What happens in our text today is something similar. The focus of the text is the temple. And the temple represents two realities coexisting, separated, yet overlapping. Those realities are the glory of God and the sinfulness of man. And as Jesus approaches this monumental space, he's asking them and us a very important question. Are we, as the people of God, are we demonstrating genuine worship, prayer, and godliness, or... Are we living hollow lives draped in religious activity? Put differently, are you using religious routine as a Trojan horse to conceal selfish desires? Let me boil it down one more time, just as simple as possible. Does faith make a difference in your life? Those are, those are, that's kind of the, the three questions he's driving at. And I want to unpack this narrative and that question in four ways. I want to look at the background. That's important the context. Then two, I want to look at the expectations 
of the text. I want to look at the reality of the text. And then finally, the fulfillment of the text. Okay, so background, expectation, reality, fulfillment. Let's talk about the background first. As I mentioned through the parallels of Harry Potter and Stranger Things, the focal point, the setting, and the most important aspect of this portion of Mark's gospel is that sacred space of overlap. It's the temple. In order to understand the significance of Jesus' actions, we have to understand the significance of the temple in the background. So I want to do that really quick from a 30,000-foot view. If you look at the route that Jesus takes in our text, cresting over the Mount of Olives, you would have seen this unbelievable panoramic view of Jerusalem. Have you guys done Holy Lands yet? You did, right? It was postponed and then, okay. So if you've seen it, if you've been to the Holy Lands, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I was there in 2019, like three months before COVID. So it was like, got there just in time. But if you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You come over the Mount of Olives and you see almost all of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem laid out right in front of you. And back then, 2000 years ago, the focal point, the most obvious structure by far would be the temple. As I said before, the temple was a place where earth overlaps with God's heavenly home. And the temple was symbolic. They didn't believe that God was actually housed there like he's making coffee in the Holy of Holies. It wasn't domesticated to those walls. Rather, it was symbolic that the entire earth, the original intention of the entire earth, all of creation was God's temple. And that's because the temple has a rich historical background stretching back to Genesis 1 and 2. The Garden of Eden was the, the initial temple. It was the original temple. It was the perfect temple. And it demonstrated, again, that overlap, but more accurately, that overlay between God and humanity and perfect harmony. And yet, as we are aware, Adam and Eve and us, by extension, desecrated the garden and that perfect temple. They desecrated that sacred space and were banished from it. One of the overarching themes of the Bible is constantly trying to get back to the garden. It's constantly trying to regain the shalom that was lost in the garden. We see it unfolding in all sorts of ways and strands and themes and motifs all throughout the Old Testament. Whereas in Eden, heaven and earth were perfectly overlaid, sin severed that reality. And yet, as I mentioned, God, from that point forward in his grace, established a place through various means that where that overlap could still take place. So throughout the Old Testament, we see imagery of humanity's quest to regain that space. We see it in the tabernacle, the portable temple where Yahweh would descend to meet his people, once again, hearkening back to the divine and human overlap in the garden. Once Israel then was established in the promised land, we see it in a more permanent way, in the permanent temple, in the temple mount, in the first temple. And that temple, not coincidentally, as well as the second temple, is full of garden imagery. And once again, we see this sacred space of overlap. We see a yearning to return to the garden. We see the menorah representing the tree of life. The temple is a place where God dwells with his people, just like Eden. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites, they were to work and keep the temple in God's presence, which, again, is the same charge that Adam and Eve received in the garden. Yet, also present in the temple is a thick veil separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple structure, and that served as a powerful reminder 
that even though there was now overlap in God's grace, it still was not perfectly overlaid. Sin still separated us. There still had to be something full and final to reconcile us to God. So, with that background in place and understood, back to our text, as Jesus makes his way towards the temple, all of that is happening in the background. We should have immense expectations for this scene. Why? Because a man making substantial messianic claims and demonstrating compelling messianic miracles is making his way to this sacred space of overlap. And set against the history of Israel, you cannot overestimate the gravity of this scene. What might we expect to happen? Let's dig through some details of the text. In verse 4, we read that Jesus calls for a colt, some translations say a donkey, to ride into Jerusalem. Now, nowhere else in the Gospels do we read of Jesus riding. He's always walking. Why would he ride now? This is the first time we see it. One commentator says this, the staged arrival in Jerusalem deviates from Jesus' previous attempts to avoid calling attention to himself. His magnetic power and miracles made his desire to keep a low profile next to impossible. And nevertheless, he consistently tried to elude the starstruck crowds whose excitement threatened to turn his mission into a carnival. You, you read this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is like, tell no one. Go away and tell no one. This is very different now. This is a very different scene. The uh, commentator goes on and says, what occurs now is a complete reversal. Jesus encourages public rejoicing by this provocative entrance. Now, why might Jesus do this? I think we get a clue in Zechariah 9.9. Jesus is intentionally grabbing that text that all of Israel would be familiar with and demonstrating it in real time in, on his way to the sacred space of overlap. Here's what Zechariah 9.9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is riding. He's encouraging this public rejoicing because his intention is to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. And his intention is to stoke a lot of those expectations, but in a particular way with a particular purpose. This scene, if you consider it, if you can watch it play out in your mind, it invites us to consider David. If you think back to 2 Samuel, which you guys aren't there yet, I don't think, but think of 2 Samuel 15 and 16. In it, we find King David fleeing Jerusalem by the way of the Mount of Olives, weeping and riding a donkey. In Mark 11 and its parallel accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, we find King Jesus entering Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives, weeping over the city, that's Luke 19, a parallel account, also riding a donkey. Again, the onlookers would be familiar with these parallels, and we as 21st century Christians need to be familiar with those parallels as well because they're important. So taking these two things into account, we have an incredibly charged scene. You have the most controversial figure of the day marching towards the most monumental location of the day and perhaps the most religiously charged week of the year in Passover. The expectation of the people in light of this scene is that Jesus is coming as just a prototypical monarch. Remember, Rome was occupying Jerusalem at the time. And so the expectation of the people in light of King David is that Jesus is just going to overthrow this government and establish an earthly rule and reign. Conversely, 
as Jesus approaches the temple, his expectation is that true and genuine worship will be found in this sacred space of overlap. And if you remember in our text, that's not necessarily what he finds, and that's not necessarily what he intends to project himself as in accordance with the expectations of the crowd. So moving to reality. In our text, notice that Jesus actually visits the temple twice. I referenced this kind of in our, in our reading. So he, he has his long travel day, and he comes to the temple once in the evening after the final leg of his journey. And, and in my mind's eye, this might be reading into the text, might be wrong here, so dismiss it. But I feel like it's a reconnaissance mission. You know, I feel like he just comes in, and he's just like, all right, and walks away. Like it just, it's just a brief little, you know, a, a snippet there. And then he goes back out to Bethany to stay, um, you know, likely with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Um, but he, what should he have seen in that, that little reconnaissance mission? What should he have seen in the temple? The Psalms give us a hint. He should have seen God being worshipped as supreme treasure. Think of Psalm 8411. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Think of Psalm 7325. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He should have seen a group of people with hearts worshipping God in accordance with those scriptures. He did not see that reality. He did not see genuine heartfelt worship of God in that sacred space of overlap. He saw a different reality. Instead, he saw hollow religious ritual. He saw spiritual busyness, but no spiritual reality. He saw external outward churchy actions with zero heart change. This is primarily exemplified in the focus on trade as opposed to the focus on God. So again, let's dig into some historical background. Passover tradition would require these pilgrims traveling from faraway places to make an animal sacrifice. And remember that animal sacrifice had to be without blemish. And so think of traveling from like Galilee to Jerusalem trying to preserve this animal sacrifice without blemish. Like if you get halfway and the thing breaks a a leg or something, it's like, all right, we got to go back, right? So it just wasn't practical for them. So due to the long nature of their travel, they wouldn't bring a sacrifice with them. They would buy it in Jerusalem once they got there. You tracking with me? Makes sense. Now, if you're in Jerusalem and you're an opportunistic entrepreneur, this is a great opportunity for you right? That's exactly what they do. It's really lucrative. And so as they start selling these livestock, they start turning over a pretty good profit. Ancient Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in one Passover week, 255,000 lambs were bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple courts. And so the temple is being used for this scheme The anger is directed at those who are selling and handling the currency. It's not necessarily directed at the pilgrims. It's more so directed at the religious experts who are leveraging this situation for personal gain. Jesus could see through the veneer of religious helpfulness to the corrupt heart. So think with me. Use five senses here with that number of 255,000 animals being bought and sold and sacrificed. What does that smell like? What does that look like? What does that sound like? What, what should have been this sacred space of overlap and this genuine worship of God has been greedily transformed into an emporium, into a bazaar, into a, a flea market. 
So maybe you've always looked at this text and you're like, why was Jesus so mad? Hopefully it makes sense now because that's what should have unfolded and didn't. All of these activities, they were not flowing from the love of God. Outwardly, it had all of the drapings and trappings of worship, but inwardly it was serving a completely different purpose. It was a religious ruse. It was obscuring what the people were actually after. And I want to pause here because I think this is where our text gets really applicable. How frequently have we, as the people of God, constructed an elaborate facade of just external religiosity without paying any attention to the actual renovation of our hearts? We go to church every Sunday, maybe we send our kids to Christian school, we volunteer, we get involved in programs, we serve on boards or executive committees, we join a small group, maybe we're a pastor, maybe we're preaching, all of these good things, all of them good things, but without genuine, personal, real communion with God, those things are just religious activity hiding and obscuring a hollow heart. We tend to have this inverse relationship between religious activity and treasuring God. Let me, let me try and unpack what I mean there. So imagine with me, uh, I'll use my own story. Imagine with me a 15-year-old boy who goes to a Young Life camp in Georgia in Sharptop Cove at two, in 2007 and gets radically saved and transformed there. Not like anything specific or anything. Um, in that moment, that 15-year-old boy, uh, boy's view of Jesus is, is big, right? Christ, in, in his eyes, is bigger than he's ever been and more important and more precious than he's ever been. But what happens is that 15-year-old boy then just continues to live life and continues to go to school and continues to go to church and continues to get distracted and continues to have idols and continues to do outwardly what looks like good things, right? But inwardly, maybe... Maybe wanting to strive and succeed, outwardly it looks great, but inwardly it's just an idol of approval. And so as time goes on, that, that view of Jesus, which was once very big, you know, life is hard. Things get busy, get smaller. Maybe, maybe you've had, you had a, a horrible experience at, at a church or something. Maybe a leader um, did something terrible. And that view just kind of dwindles and dwindles and dwindles. But as you guys know, inversely, more and more is asked of you. And so religious activity, as your view of Christ is kind of dwindling, religious activity is doing the opposite thing. It's increasing. Does that make sense? Is that, my, is that just me? No, it's you, you two. Okay, good. What that sets up is that creates in our hearts um, really unfortunate soil for the growth of what's happening in the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple courts. It's that idea, that idea of of Jesus starts big and kind of gets smaller and religious activity starts smaller and gets bigger. The ones conducting all that temple busyness are like that. Those are the ones that should know this most intimately and that's the crazy thing. Those people, the scribes and the chief priests, they were most angry at Christ's actions. We're not talking about religious amateurs here. Yet those are the very people Jesus indicts the most severely. And in many ways, again, they are pictures of us, good at maintaining this religious exterior while missing the main point of it all. One of my friends puts it this way. I, I love this. He says, it's the spiritual equivalent of going on a date and focusing entirely on your table manners while not learning a thing about the person across the table. 
It's the spiritual equivalent of not committing a single foul or traveling or anything, yet losing the game by 100 points. It's the equivalent of two planes in the air, one whose engine is roaring strong and the others who has just died. And to the external observer on the ground, those two planes look the same for a while, but one is thriving and one is inevitably crashing. It's the equivalent of staying between the lanes, not rolling a stop sign and never speeding, yet ending up in New York instead of your intended destination of LA. Paul understood this. He understood this reality, and he says so in 2 Timothy 3. And let me read it really quick. Here's what he says. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to, your, to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Jeez, Paul, calm down. Brutal, not loving God. Uh, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Let me pause there. You're all thinking, and as am I thinking, oh, he's talking about someone else. I can't wait to hear who he's talking about. Who's this going to be? Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. He's talking about us, and in an extended way, he's talking about his formal life as a scribe and a Pharisee and a chief priest. What does this mean? On the outside, you can have the appearance of godliness, but on the inside, you can really truly be all of those things, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, all of those things. But on the outside, you can have the appearance of godliness. That's what's going on in the temple, and in many ways, that's what's going on in our hearts. Let's go back just to our narrative here. In between temple visits, I want to point out a few more things. Jesus offers this object lesson in the form of a fig tree. Is anyone else confused by that passage? Is that a confusing passage to you guys? It was to me. Tim Keller helped me uh, unpack this idea. He notes that Middle Eastern fig trees, they bore two kinds of fruit. As the leaves came in the spring before the figs came, the branches, they bore these little nodules that were abundant and good to eat. And so travelers, they would pick them off and kind of pop a few in their mouth as they made their journeys to wherever they were going. But if you found a fig tree with leaves, yet none of those little nodules, you would know that something, it was, something was wrong with the tree. It would look good from a distance because of the leaves, but once you got closer, you would realize that ultimately on the inside, it was diseased and potentially dying. So you see the picture that Jesus, he's using it as an object lesson. He's using it as a, really just an illustration of what's happening in the temple. The people expected Jesus as an ally to pronounce uh, judgment on Rome, which is that external idea from a distance. Instead, he pronounces judgment on them, their internal dying reality. The crowd expected Jesus to save them from their enemies, external. Instead, Jesus says, no, you need to be saved from yourself. Before you're saved from Rome, you need to be saved from what's going on on the inside. This fig tree was a perfect metaphor for Israel and perhaps a metaphor for us, as I believe the text is inviting us to examine our own hearts in this regard. Are we keeping a perfectly manicured outer shell such that we look good from a distance, just like the fig tree did, but in reality, we're wasting away and diseased on the inside. 
I think in light of what Jesus is getting at, many, many of us are more like those money changers than we like to admit, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees. Perhaps many of us for years, we've been keeping up appearances without vibrantly valuing God as we should, as Psalm, 11, or Psalm 84, 11 talks about. So if God, if that's us, if you're sitting here and you're like, hey, that might be me, what do we do? Lastly, fulfillment. I mentioned before, Jesus, he wasn't the earthly king that people expected. He didn't overcome Rome. They would have been incredibly disappointed when at the end of Holy Week, he would have passively submitted to Roman authorities and died. But Jesus, as I said before, was stating a different reality. He was a king in the lineage of David, but he was a different kind of king. He wasn't a temporal king. He was a celestial king. He was a transcendent king. He's the true king. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. And rather than use his temple for personal gain, Jesus empties himself for the gain of others. And through his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus single-handedly won back that sacred space that was lost in Eden. Jesus offers the thing that all of Israel and all the Gentiles and all of us by extension are desperate for. If you've been tracking with me, you're probably going to see this coming, but most times old truths are the best truths. Later in Mark's gospel in chapter 15, so just four more chapters after this, he recounts what happens just at the end of this holy week that Jesus began riding in on the donkey. We're back in the same focal point of our text, the temple, that liminal overlap space between transcendence and imminence. And in Mark 15, we read that upon Christ's death, the temple veil was torn in two. Now, we have to understand this wasn't a flimsy veil. It was heavy and thick, and that was intentional in the construction of the temple to represent the distance that humanity still had from God due to remaining sin. It was almost as substantial as a wall. And it separated the people from the, president, from the presence of God, back to that idea of two realities coexisting and yet separate. The curtain said loudly and clearly that anyone who's faking it through a life of worshiping God, anyone who is wearing a Christian mask, perhaps, anyone who is not bearing fruit like a fig tree, It said those people, the the veil said those people could not access the presence of God. And in its tearing, Jesus makes a way for those types of people to come to him. He purifies their half-hearted worship, their distracted hearts. He enlivens those distracted hearts. Jesus is now happier to love sinners than sinners are to be loved by him because it's what he came to do. As the sacrificial king, Jesus establishes a new temple that welcomes repentant sinners. His reign and his jurisdiction is no longer a fixed place in Jerusalem, but it is indeed spreading throughout all the earth, and we get to be a part of that campaign, and that's exciting. In 1914, uh, British explorer Ernest Shackleton, he took a trip to Antarctica. And the plan was to cross over the South Pole in this expedition and continue to discover these new territories and and their research. And if you're familiar with this story, their plans were foiled when their ship, the Endurance, got caught in polar ice and was crushed. Over the following months, the 
crew fought all sorts of problems and struggles, but the most difficult, they had starvation, they had all, they had cold, right, all these things. They said by far the most difficult was the darkness. The worst thing was the darkness. Near the South Pole, the sun goes down in mid-May and doesn't come back up until late July, period. Like you don't see the sun at all. It's not like it sets late and rises. It's like there is no sun, there is no light. There's no daytime, no sunlight for more than two months. In many ways, as we live on this earth, we still feel that darkness. We feel that darkness spiritually. Some of it is our own fault due to that hollow reality of our hearts, and some of it isn't. Some of it is just the nature of the world imposing itself on us. We still have a ways to go. But in the death of Christ, in his formation of the new temple, the sun is rising and the darkness is receding. Slowly, yeah, but inevitably, yeah. Some shadows still remain. It won't be high noon until Jesus comes back again, but we can live with confident hope and joy knowing that one day all of our sin will be gone and we'll be fully free. We'll have no choice but to genuinely worship in the true and better temple of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55 speaks of a day where the mountains and the hills break out in song. This is a vivid picture of Eden regained, of the temple being established, not in four walls, but in all of the earth. On that day this life will feel less real than heaven does now. And heaven will feel more real than this does now. That's an incredible thought. Because of Jesus in the temple we were always intended for, there will be no more variants or masks or sleepless nights fretting for the next day's meeting. There will be no more texts that throw your entire week into disarray. There'll be no more anxiety that you're behind in life watching everyone pass you by or regretting missed opportunities. There'll be no more tense conversations with coworkers that leave you just empty and lifeless. There'll be no more alarm clocks. There'll be no more dentists. There'll be no more uh, comparisons that make you feel inadequate or insecure. There'll be no more nights where you collapse on the couch wondering how you're going to find the energy to do it all over again tomorrow. There'll be no more ongoing bodily pain. There'll be no more incurable diseases. Um, there'll be no more RSV for precious little boys. There'll be no more abortion. There'll be no more of any of those things. That's the kind of temple that Jesus desires and creates. And one that if you imagine those things and so many more with me, can't, you just, your heart can't help but swell at the thought of it. That's where we're headed. It's already happening now, and it will only increase till that end. And so maybe you're just saying, okay, well, well what are you inviting me into, Eric? First and foremost, before all of those other things, I'm inviting you to be re-enchanted with Jesus. If that's you and if that's me, um, which it is sometimes, if we get stuck in the religious routine, we need to find space and place for the renovation of our hearts and to reunite with the one that we were created for. We need to put our phones in the bottom of the ocean and go find a silent space because, listen, I don't know why, but the Lord just speaks through silence. That's where we need to start. 
That's what I'm inviting you into, to be re-enchanted by the wonder of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for uh, your word. We're grateful for your power. We're grateful for the fact that you reign right now. We're grateful for the evidence of that reign. And God, I just pray that even today, um, as some of us here might be exhausted from the week or just exhausted from life, or Lord, if, if we need rejuvenation internally, God, I pray that you would provide that for us. That's not something we can't spiritually defibrillate ourselves back into loving you, God. That is something that you do by your spirit. And so, God, we ask with open hands and open hearts that your spirit would revive us and that we would return to our first love. Uh, And God, then we would become agents of reconciliation and redemption, advancing your kingdom on the glorious campaign of the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.